We have a guest teacher this this morning, and uh, I'm really stoked. Um, privileged to have Marcus Doe up. I'm going to read a, a little short bio for him. Um, so Marcus was born and raised in Liberia, West Africa, before coming to the United States at the age of 14 after losing his parents during the brutal Liberian Civil War. Um, his published memoir, Catching Rice Birds, was released in 2016, detailing his childhood of privilege, the violence he endured, and escaping as a refugee to the United States. Marcus is a, an accomplished TEDx speaker with thousands of views speaking on forgiveness, which is what he's talking about today. Um, in 2002, or 2022, excuse me, he launched a nonprofit which serves to reconcile fathers with their estranged adult children. He currently serves as a pastor at Redemption Tucson, and uh, he is an avid Premier League fan supporting the leading team, Arsenal. And when I read that, I know how many people don't know what the Premier League is in this room, and it's all of them. That is professional soccer for any of you that didn't know. Oh, I love soccer so much, and I'm the only person in this town other than me and Sarah. Um here, uh, we wanted to share just a little glimpse of, of what, um, what Marcus has been working on, so we're going to share this video now. Fathers, we all have one. Just the mention of the word evokes some emotion within us. For some, it's a sense of security, vision, strength, wisdom, seriousness. For some, it's silliness, jokes, laughter, leader, risk-taker, Yet for some, it's anger, chaos, insecurity, fear, abuse, absence, disconnection, mystery. Fathers become the person rarely spoken about, barely acknowledged. As we get older, the desire to know our parents as people gets stronger. For those who grow up without a father present, that desire goes unfulfilled. There is mystery, hurt, and confusion. Why doesn't he want me? Why didn't he want me? For fathers, on the other hand, those who did not fill the role of dad or forfeited it altogether, there's also a mystery. There's a tremendous amount of shame. Many fathers live life with emotions as heavy as the sky, looking for a way of hope. We have accepted this as normal. We say in our collective subconscious, that's just the way it is. Things will never change. In America, one in three school-aged children are growing up without a relationship with their biological father. In any room, in any crowd, one can assume a high percentage of adults who are fatherless. Fatherlessness comes at a cost. Many of our society's negative social outcomes find their roots in the absence of fathers. Homelessness, poverty, substance abuse, suicides, lack of purpose, anxiety and depression, incarceration have a strong correlation to the absence of a father. This normalized dysfunction knows no social class or education or ethnic boundary. It affects us all, but our minority communities are especially impacted in the U.S. It's generational. More than half of children who grow up without their fathers repeat this relational cycle. They in turn are also absent from their children. The problem is massive, and it's all around us. 
We Reconcile is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to repair and prevent fatherlessness by bringing separated adult children and their fathers together through a healing journey of forgiveness and reconciliation in order to disrupt the generational cycle of emotional, social, and relational discord. In short, we guide fatherless adults and their fathers on a path to reconciliation. We do this in a four-module process over the span of 12 months. Participants are supported by counselors and a cohort of pairs of fathers and adult children. This journey will not be walked alone. There are millions of stories of redemption that have laid dormant, fragmented relationships that cry out for healing, tears that need to be shed, hugs that need to be felt, anger that needs to be relieved, hurts that need to be healed. A new future can be reimagined. Reconciliation is the goal. Redemption can happen. Good morning. It helps if you turn it off. I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. My brothers and sisters here in Prescott, let me be quick to extend my thanks and appreciation to your pastor, Landon, and the staff here, Tessa, Nate, and everyone else, all those responsible for my being here today. It's a long journey from Tucson, but I'm glad to be here. As was mentioned, I'm one of the pastors of Redemption, uh, the network of churches in Redemption, and I'm, I pastor the one in Tucson, and it's been great. Uh, pastoral ministry has been very fruitful um, and very encouraging to me and my family. I must remind you, before I begin this morning, that um, the book of James, um, chapter 3, verse 1, encourages us who preach. Not all of us are called to be teachers and preachers. Those who preach and teach will be judged more harshly, more strictly, some, uh, some translations say. So what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes, I will stand before the Lord God one day and testify. Did I tell the truth? Did I rebuke? Did I encourage? Did I teach well? And I hold that very highly. It is an honor to be behind a pulpit teaching the word of God. I will say up front, you may not be used to my intonation, my diction, my style, and my tradition. So let me just reintroduce or perhaps introduce you to how it works. I love people who take notes. I love people who nod their heads when I'm preaching, but I love amens. Preach, preacher is a good one. Mm-hmm, that's also a good one. But I know uh, you can't appreciate and trust when the word of God is taught and is taught well. So feel free 
to have an exchange with me this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for the minds and hearts in this room. Didn't come to hear from some middle-aged man the thoughts and musings. They came to hear from you and you only. Heavenly Father, would you use my voice, um, your Holy Spirit, take control and walk with us this morning as we talk about a very sensitive topic. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this city, this church, and these people. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. One of my favorite preachers, oh, there's folks up there. Oh. One of my favorite preachers, good morning, tells a story about our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. In the middle of the Civil War, the war was obviously very bloody. It was brutal. Lincoln was unpopular as he, has ever been, as he had ever been. He was falling in depression. His days were discouraging and his nights were restless. The horrible reports of deaths and losses and the ever-looming question, is the war ever going to end? On a weeknight, back when presidents could leave the White House and walk around the city, he asked his aide if they could walk that night in the city. As they walked, he thought it would be a great idea to take in the service at the National Presbyterian Church. It was an evening service. Lincoln snuck in a little late, sat in the back, asked to not disturb anyone taking part in the service. And he listened, to the, he listened to the preacher preach. He listened to the sermon. When the sermon was done, President Lincoln stayed seated. And his aide stood up and said, Mr. President, what did you think? Well, he said, the sermon was well prepared. It was well delivered. It was sincere. It was logical. It was clear. The aide said, but was it good? President Lincoln said, no. I thought the preacher failed. He failed, Mr. Lincoln said, because he did not ask of us something great. I've heard this story a few times, and it takes a hold of me whenever I take the pulpit. This morning, I'm going to ask of you something great. I'm going to ask of you something that you cannot do in your own strength. Something you cannot possibly do without the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna title this exchange between you and I this morning, the story, forgiveness is the key to living in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is the key to living in the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, or your devices, meet me in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Matthew chapter 18, Verse 23, the context here, Jesus is talking to his disciples about specifics when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. If you get there, say amen. amen. We're getting warmed up. <laughs> Verse 23, for this reason, Jesus is speaking, he says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, 
his wife, his children, and everything he had to be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed them and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and he threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw that that had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. We owed a debt that we could not possibly pay. We owe a debt that we could not possibly pay. The amount here is significant, but also hyperbole. Jesus is saying this man owed 10,000. 10,000, by the way, back then was kind of the highest numeral that people operated in normally. They didn't operate in millions and billions. So when Jesus says the, the, the slave owed 10,000 talents, he is giving an exaggerated number, right? It's an absurd amount of money to the point where he couldn't be forgiven. The talent was also a unit, a denomination of money that the, the Romans used. So he's saying, in a sense, let me put it in this way, in 2023, United States, it's almost saying this slave owed his master $10 trillion. Because trillion is where we get to, then we don't know where else to go. Maybe there's math people in here, right? You know where else to go. But after trillion, it's like, oh, where are we going? <laughs> That's how it was with 10,000 back then. If you owe someone $10 trillion today, could you possibly pay them back? The slave is on his knees saying, I can't possibly pay this back. I owe you $10 trillion, $10 trillion the amount I can't pay you. And the, the, the master says, well, let your kids work. Let your wife work. And possibly, they still probably, they could work for the rest of their lives. They couldn't pay that money back. The servant in desperation offers, like I said, his wife and children as servants. He will be indebted to this master forever. He falls on his knees, asks for mercy, all the goods and services of his life, right? All the hard work he could possibly do cannot pay this debt. This is the condition of the servant. Nothing he could do. He was completely hopeless. 
that what Jesus is trying to communicate here is something through this parable about our condition, about our relationship with God, who owns everything and to whom we owe everything. We are hopeless in trying to satisfy our debt to God. How do you pay somebody who who gives you breath every day? Oh, man. Because we are sinners, unable not to sin, and unable to cleanse ourselves from our sin. We are hopeless. It is as if we're stuck in a well, trying to get out, needing help, but can't do it. Sin is in every single one of us in this room. Not only is it in us, personally, it's in the systems and the things we create. Our best efforts at justice and fairness and government are still mired in sin. As the parable goes on, this same servant in verse 28 encounters another servant or slave who owes him the equivalent of a hundred bucks. Now, if someone owes me a hundred bucks, you want that money back. Right? Even if you owe some if, if you owe somebody ten ten trillion dollars, it's some of it's, it's a significant amount, but it's microscopic compared to ten trillion. You understand? Somebody understands. <laughs> he had just been forgiven ten trillion dollars. And he comes up on somebody who owes him a hundred bucks and he chokes him. He goes after him. It's easy for us to sit here today my brothers and sisters, to say, yeah, I would forgive 100 bucks if someone forgave me a trillion dollars, right? Maybe we would. Maybe we would forgive the 100 bucks. But here's the thing what Jesus is trying to say in his parable. It's not the money. We wouldn't forgive if it was somebody else's sin against us. When it has to do with forgiveness of sin, offenses, a hundred bucks equivalent of forgiveness, we wouldn't if we compare it to what God has done for us. Are you getting it? Yeah. All right, we got to get going here. I always say this. Some sermons get on your street. Some of them get on your block. Some sermons get into your house Some sermons sit on your couch, put their feet on your chair, open up your fridge and says, I'm just going to go through your house. I hope I'm on your couch today and I'm going to go through your fridge. Well, you invite me in. Now you brought me here. I'm here. All right. So when I say, am I on your block? Am I in your house? Am I on your couch? I want to hear something. Sins in all of us, my brothers and sisters, our culture that we live in today is bent towards vengeance and punishment. We have a bent towards justice, which is a good thing, right? Look around you, pay attention. In our culture that we live in today that is stranded in the wilderness, held hostage sometimes by uncompromising activists, anger-driven discourse, both public and private, we are bereft of the energy to compromise, quick to recognize and otherize those in ideological, political, and racial difference, right? We, amen. We need voices crying out for forgiveness. We need voices crying out for reconciliation as a way forward as a people. We see this, let me just bring it home real quick. We see this in the movies we watch. 
At the beginning of most action movies, the bad guy does something that is unforgivable. He kills a family, he kills, you know, Hollywood, right? He does this. And for the rest of the movie, what's the good guy doing? Chasing Chasing him, trying to kill him, right? And at the end of the movie, we walk out and we're satisfied. He got what he deserved, right? The heroes that we celebrate are vengeful. They're driven by revenge. We cheer because our thirst for revenge has been satisfied. Our thirst for revenge is high. Our thirst for justice is high, and that's natural. There's a popular blogger out there named Sabine Birdsong, and she wrote a blog post entitled To Hell with Forgiveness. She says this, forgiveness is deeply ingrained in, is a, it is a religious hangover from Christianity, a mindset that manifests itself in edits like, in edicts, like forgive and forget or turn the other cheek. This only serves to help abusers who act with impunity because no matter the grave depths of their actions, they can rest smug in assurance that they will be forgiven. What she is saying is that forgiveness is the opposite of justice and we must choose. What she is saying is that Christianity is a thing of the past. Forgiveness should be done with. This poses a great dichotomy between forgiveness and justice. We must choose either one or the other, she is trying to say. And our society, by the way, is communicating that in so many ways. Our society has increasingly embraced this while simultaneously pleading for leniency in our reform and penal system. We'll get to that. She is saying that we should not be sheep, we should be wolves. Don't turn the other cheek, right? Return fire. It's in our literature, it's in our plays, it's in our movies. She is saying that forgiveness ultimately is harmful. We are that people whose thirst for vengeance is very high. We harbor unforgiveness. We cheer for the guy who kills the bad guy. When a public figure we do not like does something and we cancel them, we cheer. I'm on somebody's block right now. It's a sense of satisfaction. That person has been canceled. Flame on. Here's the trouble, right? The trouble lies in our own memory. How quickly we forget our own sin, our own transgressions. We want forgiveness for us, for myself, but punishment for everyone else and vengeance for others. After all, I'm not that bad, right? We tell ourselves, I'm not not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that guy, right? Verse 29 says, when when the, the two slaves meet, he says, at this, his fellow slave fell down. The one he's ought to forgive fell down and and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing, the Bible says. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what he owed. His friend owed him some money. They were both in the same situation. They were both slaves. His friend's pleading with him. Asked for patience, but he refused. Forgetting that he had just been forgiven $10 trillion. 
Someone owes him a hundred bucks, and he's all up in their grill, the kids say. <laughs> so what is forgiveness, ladies and gentlemen? Have you thought it through? What is forgiveness? We have a cursory knowledge of it, and we think we maybe we have a grasp of it some way. But let me, let me, let me, let me not use my words. Let me use uh, Tim Keller's words. In seminary, we used to refer to Tim Keller as the Presbyterian Pope, so whatever he writes is good. <laughs> I love him. To forgive, he says. To forgive, then, is the first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable, rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner, rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is, to their, it is to will their good. Third, he says, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. Finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any of these four actions, Keller says, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. The Bible is very clear, my brothers and sisters. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 says, If you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. If you're wondering what that passage is, it's right below the Lord's Prayer. You can't miss it. Those who will not forgive cannot expect to be forgiven. The point is strongly made all over the New Testament by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, right? In the comments that follow it as we forgive those who trespass against us. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, as I leaf through the Bible, I wasn't always a Christian. As I leaf through the Bible one time, I was in my 20s, and I start, I'm looking through the Bible, and I'm reading. I became a Christian at 19, and I'm reading the Bible, and I came across this verse. And it rocked my world. It rocked my world because I grew up in Liberia, West Africa, a small country that most of you probably... Maybe you've heard of it. I'm not going to say that to you, but maybe you've heard of it. Small country, um, about three million people when I lived there. Um, my mother was poisoned, and she lost her life when I was nine. There was a civil war in the country. My dad was the assistant director of the Secret Service of the country, and when the government was being overthrown, he was captured, and he was killed when I was 11. I was, at 11 years old, I was an orphan, living in civil war, eating one meal a day, in hiding because they were looking for folks with my last name to, to kill. They were child soldiers who were the same age as I was. They were taking people's lives and would have taken mine if they would have found me. I left Liberia on a little tiny boat in November of 1990. We were on the seas for two days and we landed in another country and I became a refugee and I lived as a refugee for three years before I came to the United States. While I was a refugee, I got a letter from one of my brothers who was still stuck in Liberia and the letter came and, the, and, and my brother detailed what had happened to my father. It's very gruesome. And he told me the name of the man who killed my father. And at 12 years old, I told myself, that one day I would find that man and do unto him what he had done to my dad. It wasn't until I was 28, for 16 years, I held on to that. 
Some of you may not be in my situation, but you're in situations with people where you're holding back some of those things. If the church, my brothers and sisters, is the community of the forgiven, then all its relationships will be marked by forgiveness, which is not a mere form of words, but an essential characteristics of people who have been forgiven. You can say amen if you want, but that's all right. Sometimes a strange dichotomy exists between what we believe or claim to believe and what we do. A strange dichotomy exists between what we say and how we act. We treat forgiveness, my brothers and sisters, as a suggestion rather than a command. But the world out there is taking notes. Other believers and unbelievers are watching our relationship with God and each other. Somewhere in the Bible it says that the road is narrow. I'm convinced that that road is narrow, not because God made it narrow, but few people walk on that road. That's why it's narrow. Look who's watching, my brothers and sisters. Verse 31. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply, quote, deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. My question here is, what is kingdom living, right? How do we live as Christians who have been forgiven? How do we work that power? How do we extend forgiveness? It's distressing and, it's distressing and, and, and deeply dis, dis, disappointing to see someone who claims to be a Christian, who has been forgiven, hold on to forgiveness. This kingdom living, when we pray, thy kingdom come, Part of that kingdom come here on earth is the ability to forgive, and that forgiveness needs to start spilling out from the church into the world. It needs to start, the roots needs to be in here, and it needs to be out in the world. Amen? Amen. A few years ago, there was a story on the news that quickly vanished. It was a story of a young man, maybe you've heard it, I'll remind you. If you've heard it, let me rehearse it. A young man named Botham Jean. He was in the news for a few days. Folks were outraged. And then the story disappeared. It disappeared because it didn't fit the vengeance narrative. In September of 2018, a Dallas police officer came home from work and entered the wrong apartment. And she walked into a young man's apartment. He was sitting there watching TV. He, she thought it was her apartment and he had broken in. And she shot him and killed him. The outrage in our country was intense, as you can imagine. Yet another shooting, you know what I'm talking about right here, right? She went to trial and she was convicted, but then the story kind of faded out of our view. It disappeared because what happened at her sentencing was a clear picture of when justice and mercy meet each other. It disappeared off the news. People didn't want to talk because it didn't feed into the vengeance narrative. Botham's brother, at her sentencing, Brant, his name was, publicly forgave her and embraced her. Our society, hungry for vengeance, really had little to feed on in that story. How did he do that? How was he able to do that? How was he able to hug the person who took his brother's life, 
took something from him that he would never get back. It's difficult if you sit in his seat. That is kingdom living. That is the living, that is living in, in the world and not of the world. We ought to live very differently as Christians. And I tell you right now, it will cost you. Some of us don't want it to cost us anything to be a Christian. I'm on somebody's couch right now. <laughs> this is a young man who understands that he had, what, he, what he had received from God vertically, he is passing to his neighbor, to her horizontally. A debt that he could not pay, he understood, has now been passed to her because she owed him a debt she could not pay. What he received, he has passed on. The work that I do with fathers and their estranged children works this way. Millions of kids in this country, you know the statistics, I'm not going to go through it. Fathers have walked away from their families for one reason or another. They carry a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. And on the children's side, there's a lot of anger, a lot of disappointment, a lot of confusion. You saw it in the video. My goal is to help fathers and their children walk that difficult, narrow path of reconciliation that, can, that, that has forgiveness in it, that has tears in it, that has hard emotions in it, that has just everything that you can think of when men... And, 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 and their children get together. I want to help fathers reconcile with their children. What we have received, we can pass on. I will say this right now. Hurts people hurt people. You've heard that. Forgiven people. Healed people. Christian living works that way. What we have received, the debt, the $10 trillion that God, we owed God that we could not pay, that he has let us have, it just, just move on with, we need to extend to others. Here's the good news. God is both just and merciful. Verse 27 shows his mercy. It says this, then the master of that slave had compassion. He released him and forgave him the loan. That is God's merciful side. His just side starts in verse 32. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, you unforgiven person, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry, the Bible said, and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay the debts. Justice and mercy. The good news. If you ask God for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and transgressions. 1 John 1, 9 says that. I owed so much. I'm not going to talk about you. I know I owed so much. I was such a person stuck in the well of sin, couldn't save myself, and God's message reached me somewhere. I was an unforgiven person, and you would say I had just cause to be unforgiven. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The servant owed a debt debt he could not pay. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us this morning in this message is that in the parable he says, don't you see yourself? We are that servant. Our sins, our debt we owed is the spiritual, spiritual end of our debt is death. But there's someone who paid our debt. Our debt, which must be paid, was paid by Jesus. We can live forever debt-free and death-free. Y'all missed that. Mm -mm. (laughs) We can live debt-free and death-free. In the kingdom of God, despite our sin, because our debt has been paid by Jesus on the cross. God's mercy and justice was shown on the cross. Jesus took on God's justice, just as what we owed, he took on. He took our place and, on, uh, and took on death, our rightful punishment. God in his mercy said, my son will take it so that you can go free. Yeah, somebody got it. <laughs> Oof. God is just and merciful. We are sinful and we owe a debt. We were mired in sin and forgiveness and unforgiveness. We were helpless, hopeless, and tired. Don't tell nobody this, but I read the Bible sometimes. (laughs) And somewhere in the Bible I read, we have been made righteous through his forgiveness. Somewhere in the Bible I read that the gracious gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Somewhere in the Bible I read God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Somewhere in the Bible I read he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Somewhere in the Bible I read, who the sun sets free is free indeed. Somewhere in the Bible I read, he keeps his promises to a thousand generations. Somewhere, brothers and sisters, in the Bible I read, if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We can extend forgiveness because people like us, we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is the key to living in the kingdom of God. After 20 years of being away from Liberia, I left when I was 11, 2010, I was 31 years old, and I bought a ticket to go back home to find the people who took from me something that I could never get back. You've never hit an enter button so hard to buy that ticket. Bought the ticket, packed my stuff, got on that plane, longest flight, but also shortest flight. You can imagine, I hadn't seen my siblings in 20 years. I'm the last of six children. We hadn't, we hadn't had communication for 14 years. The war was still going on. They thought I was dead. I thought they were dead. When 2010 came around and it was free to go and Liberia was peaceful and I bought that ticket to go back home. And, and my body, I can tell you the emotions that I had. I wish I could convey that, but I don't have language enough to tell you the emotions that were going through my body when that plane landed. I had told my brothers that I was coming, but they didn't believe me. 
And so I told one of their wives that I was coming. Let me make a, a note here before you leave here and think my brothers have multiple wives. I have multiple brothers and they have one wife apiece. Okay? So let's just put that out there. There's the Africans out here right now. Let's, let's just make that correction right now. She brought me to the house, the house that I grew up in. My brothers are sitting on the back porch. They're eating dinner together. It's a Wednesday night. And I stand up on the porch and I start walking towards them and they don't recognize who I am. Because our oldest brother is with me here in the States and they thought I was him. And so they said, Roosevelt, is that you? And I said, no. I said, Jungle Boy Marcus. My name is Jungle Boy back home. That's what they call me. Long story. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and we eat dinner. We stay up from 8 p.m. that night to 1 p.m. the next day. You can't imagine a tearful celebration if you tried. I'm in Liberia for, for, for five weeks, and I gained 27 pounds. Because <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to feed me. Because people haven't seen me, because in Liberia, the war lasted for 14 years. If people don't see you after a while, they don't ask about you, because they don't want to bring up old things. So a lot of the people who knew me when I was a kid thought I had died. I get, I'm, I'm about to come back to the States and I'm sitting in the barber shop. There are about four, probably six or seven men in the barber shop with the barber and the barber is cutting my hair. And I give them, I think I give them either five or 10 US dollars, which uh, the equivalent of a haircut there is a dollar. So when you give somebody 10 times what they want, right? So he's literally cutting every single hair. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, a, it's like a three hour haircut here. <laughs> he's cutting and he's cutting and he asked me, he said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Marcus. And I said, my last name, my last name is Doe, Marcus Doe. And at that point he has a razor right here. Right? And he said, Doe? And I said, yes. He said, how did you survive the war? And I said, I was in hiding. He, along with every other barber sitting, every other person sitting in that barber shop, were former child soldiers who would have taken my life 20 years earlier. And they start telling me their story one after another. I killed this many people. I've done this. I can't sleep without drinking. I can't sleep without alcohol because I need to be set free. Why did you come back, Mr. Doe? And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to say it. And I think the words that came out of my mouth was like, I came back for you. Here's what happens when we, when we live with unforgiveness. We caricaturize the people that we don't want to forgive. And I looked into their eyes, and they were not the monsters that I imagined them to be. The people in your life that you need to forgive are not the monsters in your life. Everybody is more than the worst thing they've ever done. God sees us not as that but as image bearers of Christ. You understand what I'm trying to tell you. And that man that day sat as he cut my hair and it was almost, I couldn't describe the spirit in that room, in that little shop. They felt something else. And I was glad to be there. I was a little afraid, but I was glad to be there. I'm telling you this story about forgiveness because that's what my life has become. I didn't want it to be that, right? That's what it's become. This 
story of forgiveness, this message of forgiveness, what I do, my life is about forgiveness, it comes from someone, right, who at one point contemplated murder, fantasized about how I would kill the man who killed my dad, fantasized about the downfall of him and his family, but I wrestled with God deeply when it came to the topic of forgiveness. Their journey to reconciliation is absolutely real and it's very hard. I'm trying to tell you something this week. Here's what I'm going to ask you. Something great, like I said this morning. You have somebody, as I'm talking, you've pictured somebody in your mind that you need to forgive. Not just something little. Not the person who cut you off in traffic. You should forgive them too. But somebody who has done something to you that you think is uncompletely forgivable. Right? You think is, you cannot, we cannot forgive this person because of what they've done. God has justice and mercy. God has forgiven us and we can forgive others. It is very difficult. I know it is not easy, right? They took something from me that I would never get back. I got married. I graduated college. I bought a house. I did everything. My parents were not there. And someone took that from me. I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, it is worth it to be on the other side of forgiveness. It is worth it. It is worth it. Forgiveness is the key to living in the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Your spirit moved. Lord, I love what you've done. I love what you're doing, and I love what you're going to do. Lord, as people in this room contemplate making a phone call to forgive, setting an appointment to talk to somebody, would you give them the courage? Would you give them the love? Let your Holy Spirit begin to move in their hearts. I want to thank you, Lord, for giving me the opportunity to share your great story of forgiveness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, and if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.